Well, hello. Welcome to Dark Stories from the Campfire. For this episode, we present to you three dark stories. Our first tale concerns a babysitter. When he begins to hear a strange whistling coming from around the house, he does some research and discovers an urban legend. An urban legend that might claim him as his next victim. We present to you the hangman's whistle. It was in a night much like this one, rainy and cold, that Kevin heard someone whistling. Laying his book down on his lap, Kevin listened intently, wondering if he had actually heard the whistle and where it might be coming from. A few moments later, he heard the whistling again. Looking down the hall to where the children he was babysitting was sleeping, he called out, thinking one of them might have gotten up and was playing with the dog. When he received no response, he settled back on the couch, continuing to read. However, after only getting through a few pages, the whistling was heard once more, and it sounded like it was coming from the backyard. Kevin was still wondering if one of the children had gotten up, slipped past him, and was playing. This wasn't the case, as Kevin would learn when he slid open the back door and flipped on the floodlights. Other than the typical lawn furniture, the backyard was empty. He listened to the rain patter against the house and the ground for a few minutes before sliding the door shut, locking it and turning off the lights. But no sooner had he picked up his book, he heard the whistling again, this time closer and louder, and though he wasn't entirely certain, it sounded like whoever was whistling was moving from the side of the house towards the front door. Quickly racing to the door and making sure that deadbolt was firmly in place, Kevin leaned his air against the door and listened. When he didn't hear anything for some time, he decided to look out the peephole. All he saw was wet leaves being blown around the front porch. He let out a deep sigh and slouched against the door. Maybe it was just the neighbor, he thought, walking in the rain. It is possible. Resting back on the couch, Kevin decided to text a friend to at least bring some sense of control back to his nerves. They traded a few messages back and forth before Kevin told his friend about the strange whistling he had been hearing. His friend responded back with, Seriously? Dude, I think I read something about this before, about people hearing strange whistling. Kevin wrote back in response, Whatever, you are just trying to scare me. It's probably the weird neighbor being a perv and looking through people's windows. His friend didn't immediately reply, but about 10 minutes later, sent Kevin a link to a website. Clicking on the link, Kevin began to read. Known as the Hangman's Whistle, it originally began in the Kansas State Penitentiary. Those who believed they had been falsely charged and sentenced to death would march up to the gallows, head held high, whistling. Soon, however, other inmates in the prison began using the whistle, initially as a way to mock their fellow prisoners, but then gradually as a way of protesting their death sentence as certain capital punishments laws were passed. However, despite the transition, the whistle was still widely used as a mechanism of communication to the witnesses of their execution that they were innocent and therefore rejected any guilt for the crime in which they had been convicted. In a dark twist to the story, in the 1920s and the 1930s, several families were found murdered, hung from their ceiling of the living room in Iowa, Texas, and California. Neighbors reported that while they didn't hear any screams or sounds of struggle, 
They did, however, see a figure either in the house or walking around the property, whistling the hangman's whistle. Kevin lowered his phone, looked around the living room, and listened. Was the whistling he heard the same the prisoners used, or the same as what the neighbors of the murdered family heard? Down the hall, he heard a doorknob click and the door open. Slowly, Kevin raised himself from the couch, watching in horror as the door to one of the children's rooms opened. He raced down the hall and thrust himself into the room, but all he saw was a young child fast asleep in their bed. He backed away to the hallway, breathing heavily. Then, from the living room, the whistling started again and echoed around the house. Kevin was afraid to move. His breathing quickened, and the whistling came closer and closer. Kevin closed his eyes tightly, hoping it would go away, for he was too afraid to know what was causing the whistling. It was then he heard a thud. Kevin opened his eyes wide, and in his peripheral vision, a dark figure stepped into the opening of the hallway. Kevin shouted, desperately calling out the children's name, telling them to wake up and to quickly put on their shoes. Grabbing each of them by their hands, Kevin pulled the children down the hallway as quick as he could. When they reached the end of the hall and entered the living room, one of the children let out a scream, for hanging on the ceiling were three nooses. They had no time to linger, no time to realize what was going on, and within seconds, Kevin and the two children were standing in the front lawn near the street. The children, terrified, held on to Kevin tightly as they watched the dark figure pace around the living room, disappear down the hall, then appear back in the living room. Moments later, a pair of bright lights were blinding them, forcing them to cover their eyes. The children's parents had arrived home, and it was their headlights that forced them to cover their eyes. Panicked, the parents jumped out of their car and ran towards Kevin and the children. Frantically, they tried to explain that someone was inside the house. The father pulled out his phone and called the police. There doesn't seem to be anyone here, the officer was telling the parents. We searched everywhere, nor did we find anything hanging from the living room ceiling. If you ask me, the officer continued, maybe your babysitter had a nightmare and ended up freaking the kids out. The parents nodded in agreement, sullenly handing them his card and instructing the parents to call if they need anything else, the officer left. Later that night, after Kevin had been driven home and the children tucked back to their bed, the mother, lying awake in the dark room, thought she heard whistling coming from the backyard. For our second story, we offer you a dark folktale. Our narrator confesses a fear of blue lights. What seems irrational at first, they trace the fear back to its origins and to a sinister figure called Broomstick Henry. We present to you a folktale, Broomstick Henry. Growing up, they would always warn us about seeing a strange blue light. And if I did, and I was alone, I was instructed to run away and not look back. Because if I did, then I would be another victim of Broomstick Henry. The story goes that in the mid-19th century, there was a man named Henry Woods who lived in a farm far outside of town. He was a poor farmer with four children, his wife having died shortly after the birth of their youngest child. Every now and then, Henry and his four children would come into town, 
and he always made sure that the children walked in a single file line. He did this by carrying a broomstick that he would rest on the children's shoulders, for if any of the children stepped out of line, the broomstick would fall, leading to the children being severely punished. It was rumored that he did this to teach his children to depend on each other and to not be distracted by the outside material world. It was hard to say if that reason was real or not. One day, the sheriff was called out to Henry's farm as one of his neighbors noticed they hadn't seen Henry or his children playing or roaming around the property. As the sheriff approached the house, he noticed all the windows had been boarded up. When the sheriff knocked on the door, no sound came from within, and no one answered. Taking a step back on the porch, the sheriff began calling out not only Henry's name, but the names of the children as well, hoping one of them might recognize his voice and run to the door. But again, no answer was given. Finally, with the help of a deputy, the front door was broken down, and what they saw horrified them. Henry was sitting in his chair, looking straight forward, while at his feet lay the four children, neatly tucked in a row, with a broomstick placed across their chest. The room was dark, save for a lamp on the table next to Henry, covered by a blue lampshade, giving the room a twilight feel. Henry never said why he killed his children. Not once did he speak during his trial, or was any explanation offered. In the end, the jury only deliberated for about 20 minutes before announcing a guilty verdict. With that, Henry was sentenced to death by hanging. A small crowd gathered in the prison courtyard to watch Henry ascend the gallows to meet his fate. The local pastor said a few words of blessing before Henry was asked if he had any last words, any explanation he would like to offer. He stayed true to his silence, and the crowd watched as his body fell through the trap door shake for several moments, then stop. And that was the end of Henry Woods. Several years later though, a farmer, awoken by a sound outside, saw a faint blue light coming from his barn. But when the farmer approached the barn to investigate the blue light, it suddenly vanished and there was nothing in the barn. When the farmer returned to the house, he found his wife frantic running from room to room calling out the children's names, for she had gone to check on them when the farmer was in the barn and found that they had been missing. Later that night, a couple, who were woken by a faint blue light coming from their downstairs to their house, had also discovered their children missing. It was said that an old hermit who lived in the woods saw the children that night walking single file, and behind them was Henry with his broomstick. Six months later, in the next town over, reports of seeing a faint blue light also began to spread, and children began to go missing. One store owner claims to have found his broom broken at the base, leaving only the brushes behind, though there was no indication of anyone had broken in to steal the broomstick. Again, people claimed to have seen children walking single file away from the town, with a broomstick resting on their shoulders. In both cases, the children were never found, nor were they heard from ever again. Predictably, panic began to set in. A curfew was instituted and all blue lights were destroyed, but still the stories persisted. Travelers would come into town asking about strange lights they had seen the night prior. 
the residents of the town would pretend as though they knew nothing of any strange lights. As time went on, however, parents of the town would become more and more protective of their children, so much so they prohibited them from playing outside, should Broomstick Henry grab them. Generations passed, and overprotectiveness shifted to idle threats. It wasn't uncommon for parents to tell unruly children that if they didn't behave, they would sit them outside with a blue light, for even the children knew what that meant. And though it might have been said mainly in jest, one will never see a blue light hanging anywhere in town. I have been told that story my entire life. I am in my 60s now, and though I have moved away many years ago and live in a different state, I still grow nervous and tell my grandchildren to beware of any blue lights they may see, so hopefully to spare them from being taken by Broomstick Henry. Before we continue with our dark stories, let's take a moment to catch our breath and try to regain our senses. Our third and final dark story concerns a letter received by a paranormal investigator who becomes sick shortly after. While the physicians are confused as to what may causing the investigators decline towards death, it is in the contents of the letter the true source is revealed. We present to you the strange execution of Holly Sharp. My physicians tell me I am dying, and I admit I am willing to agree with them. There is increasingly more blood in my spittle, and I grow more fatigued every day, so much so that I can hardly get out of bed to dress myself any longer. My wife has called on the finest doctors that she could find, and not a day goes by that one doctor after another is paraded through my room, poking and prodding my entire body using different instruments of varying size, or pulling out an odd insect out of a jar of water, insisting that they have had great success using it, if only I let it attach itself to my exposed appendages. I am fairly certain by now, more than half the physicians at the local college are as intimate with my urine as they are with my wine. In the end, each conclusion is always the same. Whatever is causing my malady is a mystery, but I know it is not. I know what dark phenomenon is responsible for my deterioration. I am something of a spiritual investigator, you may say. I have a deep interest in stories and experiences that revolve around the paranormal. Those who claim communication with the deceased are of special interest and truth be told, I have gained a reputation of of ending the short, fraudulent career of many women who claim to have direct connection to the afterlife, but in reality are merely flexible enough to ring a bell between their knees. Outside of my direct research, I have also asked friends and relatives who live abroad to send me stories or any tidbits of information that might intrigue me. One day, I received a letter without a return address in a handwriting that was unrecognizable to me. I put it to the side with the other letters. Whatever the contents would be, I would address later on that evening after dinner. I must admit that the mystery of the letter intrigued me, for rarely did I receive letters outside of my social connections, as there had been some issues with rumors of my family years ago, and hence I have more or less gone into hiding, keeping my address hidden to all save a few trusted people. 
After dinner, having settled behind my reading desk, I immediately opened the mysterious letter. As I pulled out the sheets of paper, which was covered in little specks of blood out of its envelope, grains of sand spilt on my lap, and even more grains fell as I unfolded the letter and began to read. I will quote the letter in its entirety, as I feel it is relevant to my current situation, to help explain other mysterious infections that will certainly be appearing throughout the world. The letter began. Dear Sir, I write to you in the hopes you may be of assistance, for a terrible plague has engulfed my village and has been spreading to the surrounding countryside, and with the information I have learned from your uncle concerning your scholarly approach to such matters, you might be able to provide some answers. It was your uncle who provided me with your information, for once he heard my tale, he insisted on having me write it down and sending it immediately. He also revealed you are in general a private person, but promised me that in this particular situation, you will be sympathetic and forgive my directness. I feel I am to blame for everything that has happened. I am prone to avarice and promiscuous behavior, and my debauchery had led me to developing a rather intense rash upon certain parts of my body. I tried the typical remedies and ointments, but to no avail, and the rash continued to spread and become uncomfortable. When a friend of mine discreetly mentioned that there may be a solution to my problem, I was eager to discover his answer, but when he told me I must visit one holly sharp, my stomach dropped, and I pushed him to present another alternative solution. There is none, he told me. He had seen it the year prior for almost the same affliction. Within a fortnight, the skin infection was gone, and he had more energy. However, he was quick to tell me, the cunning woman, as she was known, lives in the woods, and of course doesn't keep normal physician's hours, and then I must visit her at midnight, knock three times, and wait patiently. If she deems me fit to help, she'll open the door. I thought the idea mad, but what choice did I have? Later that night, I threw my cloak over my shoulders and made my way to the forest. After some time wandering about the trees, I believed I was lost, that my friend had played a joke on me, but then softly I heard someone singing. I dared not proceed forward, for ominous sounds at that hour, in that place, rarely herald good news. But what choice did I have, though? If Holly Sharp is real and she could help, I had to find her. After searching in the dark woods for some length of time, I saw in the distance two bright torches burning. As I drew closer, I could make it a house, built into a large tree, with a wooden fence crossing in front of the torches. Next to the front door was a small garden where colorful herbs grew. I pushed myself to the gate and into the light, and knocked on the door three times and waited for an answer. The night was cold. I pulled my cloak tighter around me as I waited. I'm not sure how long I stood outside the house, but inside I could hear the same song being sung I heard earlier. It was beautiful. I was growing impatient and yearned to be out of the woods, especially since it seemed as though I was not deemed worthy enough to help. As I turned to exit back through the gate, the door opened. Standing in the doorway was not a haggard old woman as some would believe, but a beautiful young woman with long, shiny black hair and a flowing purple dress. This, I had to assume, was Holly Sharp. She did not speak, but merely reached out, grabbed my hand, and led me into the house. The room itself was small, containing only a table, a bed in the corner, and a fireplace with a metal pot hanging above the fire. On one side of the room, cages, filled with various mammals such as rabbits and cats lined the wall, and from the roof hung talismans made from bones. 
probably gently removed my cloak, flung it across the bed, and lifted my clothes to reveal the rash. I started to speak to explain the problem, but she placed her finger on her lips, shaking her head. I did her bidding and stayed silent. Holly walked over to the pot above the fire and lifted the lid. An odd odor drifted out and filled the room. To my astonishment, Holly submerged her entire hand in the pot, and when she pulled it out, her hand was covered in an orange mud-like substance. It was this that she rubbed on my rash before leading me to the bed and lying me down. The effect of the remedy was almost immediate. The itching had stopped, and my body was finally able to relax. So much so that in a matter of minutes, tiredness swept over me, and I could barely keep my eyes open. I can't recall how long my slumber lasted, only to say that at some point I did awaken, briefly, but long enough to witness Holly dancing next to the fireplace, singing. The following morning, I awoke to a cold, empty house. I left the house in a hurry, making my way back through the woods towards the village. My goal of absconding to my rented room was broken, for as I crept from alley to alleyway, I happened upon a group of friends causing general mischief behind the tavern. They instantly sprung upon the fact that not only was I out all night, but I was also wearing the same clothes as the night before. They teased, hassled, and begged me to reveal who I was with. I avoided the question entirely, pushing my way through the group. However, one of the members yelled out that maybe I had been seen with the old witch, Holly Sharp. The rest of the group shifted from jeers to inquisitiveness as they asked me if it was true, if that's where I had been. More questions were asked of me. Did she turn me into a goat? Is it true that she allows live bats to fly around unhindered? Did I see any hourglasses? Because that is where she keeps her enemies. What spells did I see? Did I witness any that would make Rosalind fall in love with them? I shook my head to these questions and laughed. You see, my friends, I finally answered, I had been out all night crossing with my neighbor, and somehow, due to our inebriated state, we ended up outside the village by the creek, where we passed out until morning, hence my disheveled state and wearing of the same clothes. But I doubt they believed my deception. Nonetheless, they hollered and laughed, but left me alone to wander back to my room where I instantly viewed my rash to find that it had, for the most part, left my body. Whatever she rubbed upon it was surely working. Less than a week later, I was fully recovered. Several weeks later, there came a knock on my door. Two men dressed in black stood in my doorway and asked if they could enter as they had some questions for me. Confused, I let them in. They did not sit down, nor did I offer it, but they stood there, at first looking around my small rented room, then at each other, then at me. They have information, they told me. A witness, in fact, has testified about my contact with Holly Sharp. I felt as though the wind had been knocked out of me. I began to explain that I didn't know Holly Sharp really, and they had gone to her house a few weeks earlier in search of an ointment for a skin rash I had contracted. That, I swear, had been my only contact with her. The two gentlemen looked at each other once more, before starting their questions up again. What had I seen specifically, they asked, and how long had I been there? I told the two gentlemen, who by now I had identified as government officials, much the same I had stated in this letter. The two officials stood listening to my short confession, staring at me stoically as I finished each sentence. At the end of their visit, one of the gentlemen reached into their cloak and pulled out a thick, folded sheet of papers. It was a summons, they informed me, to appear before the local magistrate to testify against Holly Sharp. What has she done? I asked quickly. Neither one gave an answer only pointing at the pages they handed me 
and telling me the date at which I should appear. I did not know what to make of this news. I opened the folded sheets of paper and began to read. Holly Sharp had been arrested on the charge of murder, the pages said, though it didn't give any specifics, and it wasn't until I arrived at my scheduled day to the magistrate that I finally learned the details behind her arrest. Holly had, according to what I could gather, as the trial had already been proceeding for a few days now, prescribed an oil to a servant in the governor's household to help cure them of some nightmares. Unfortunately, the oil contained a root known to be poisonous. Holly protested, stating that she had never been that careless with her recipes, and besides, she argued, she hadn't treated the servant anyway. The magistrates scoffed, informing her that they had in fact a witness to her unregulated application of what they called wild medicine. It was then they called my name and asked me to present myself. It was fair, I tell you. I wish no harm upon the woman, I swear it. She had helped me, cured me of my affliction that no other physician could. All eyes were on me, and the voice kept demanding I tell the truth. And so I did. I told them everything I had seen and felt. How she, without approval, rubbed an orange mud-like substance on my body, and how I lost consciousness in the dancing and the song. The entire courtroom was silent. I could feel Holly looking desperately at me. My nerves were weak, and my stomach churned. I could not look at her, not now, never again. The following day, the same friend who had recommended Holly to me, the same friend who was more than likely the witness who had told officials about my visit, gave me the news that Holly had been sentenced to death by hanging rather than being burnt at the stake. Thanks to you, my friend said with a grin, that wicked woman will never be able to hurt anyone else. I was sick and dizzy. The execution was to be the following week, held in the center of town. I spent the next few days alone in my rooms, pacing around in the dark. By the morning of the execution, I had concluded that I had to attend. It wasn't the spectacle of morbidity that influenced my decision to watch Holly hang, for there was no lack of that in the crowd. I was hoping that if I could catch one last glimpse of her, if I could make eye contact one last time, It'd be my way of apologizing, my way of begging for forgiveness, that maybe she would understand why I said the things I said. The courtyard was packed with people. It took me some time to push my way up towards the front so that she could see me, but also so I could blend in should the need arise. A chair went up as she was led to the stairs of the gallows. Holly did not look at anyone, nor did she flinch as she was pelted with vegetables and rocks. Finally, she began to climb the stairs to the platform. As she was put into place and the noose wrapped around her neck, a priest stepped forward and declared that it was her last chance to repent. Holly leaned towards the priest, whispered something in his ear, and pulled back, smiling. The priest, meanwhile, covered his mouth and stepped away. It was now time. I tried to make eye contact with Holly, but was unable to as she kept her head down though I could see a faint smile across her lips. The executioner grabbed the wooden handle that controlled the trap door and pulled. But Holly didn't fall. The door opened and her dress and shoes hit the ground, but she did not. For as the trap door opened and she began her descent, her body suddenly dissolved, turning into grains of sand that scattered in all directions, covering everyone in the audience and beyond. It was many minutes before the sand began to settle. We all looked around in amazement. How had she done it? How does a body simply transform into sand? 
You see, since that day, our town has known nothing but drought and sickness. Nothing grows anymore, and our animals are too weak to stand, let alone work the increasingly barren fields. The wells are dry, and whatever water is available contains a foul stench. As for the town folk, most of us cough up blood and are too weak to move, while the rest have developed lesions and are in too much pain to sleep. The sand is everywhere. It seems as though everything it touches gets infected by the same mysterious malady as the rest of us. Please, if the information I have told you is accurate, help us. Provide us with some solution that we can be cured so we can once again carry on with our lives. Yours truly. That was the letter. I had no idea what to think after finishing, nor could I even contemplate how to intervene between this helpless town and whatever phenomenon was attacking them. I placed the letter down on my reading table and stood up. It was then I remembered the sand that had fallen out of the envelope and onto my lap that had brushed onto the floor. Surely this can't be real. It was only a few days later that I awoke one morning coughing up blood. I write this as a warning, as I have already stated, and to provide a better explanation, should future parties be interested, of my death. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more, please subscribe. We'll be releasing new dark stories every Monday, and we are sure you wouldn't want to miss out. If you like the stories and what we are doing here, please consider supporting the show with the links provided, or leave a tip if you like a particular episode. Again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Dark Stories from the Campfire.